Good morning. Uh, my name is Laura. I am with Bethany Retirement Community, and I just want to say welcome uh, to our community for those who have not been here before. Though I have a feeling from what I understand when it comes to pizza, nobody's going to get up and go anywhere because it's supposed to be a pretty good presentation, and there's some pretty good snacks in the back too. So, Okay, we're going to go ahead though. Bethany has one person. We have our own really special, awesome celebrity, and since she came down today, and we love to embarrass her. Edith, could you stand up for a moment? Because one of the things we love, this lady right here... And she, for those who weren't here last month when we had the, the thing about peaches, she was down here as well. Edith just turned 105. And one of the reasons we like to introduce her to any group that includes um, people who have a culinary or food bent is one of the things that she does every day is bakes or cooks something. I have been the recipient of some very tasty, tasty things, as has everybody else in this building at some point. So I think she's a good example of good food equals long life. So I think you're in the right room with the right group of people. So yes, Judy. I also want to point out she makes her own wine. Oh, and she makes her own wine. <laughs> that she doesn't share. <laughs> Okay, and without any further ado, I'm going to hand over the microphone. Good morning and welcome. My name is Scott Warner, and I'm president of the Culinary Historians of Chicago. And I'll tell you about our event next month in this room. On October 19th, we're going to have a woman who's written a book about dining on the Titanic and what they ate about the food of the period and about Chicago connections to the Titanic. And she has lots of poignant tales. And uh, <clears throat> I think the big thing about her talk is it'll give us all a real sinking feeling. So we, we hope. But I've heard her talk, and it's, she's wonderful. And she may have a famous chef with her from Chicago. I can't say who it is because we're still working out the details, but uh, somebody who contributed recipes, historic recipes to the book. And it's, it's a very, very interesting tale about food, the food history, and um, just very, very poignant. And today, our speaker, Peter Reinhardt, is one of the world's greatest authorities on bread and pizza. He's written award-winning books, and he's going to tell you about his background. Um, so I won't go into much detail about his background. I will say that uh, I've known Peter for years. I've had the honor of being at conferences with him where he's been one of the keynote speakers. He's on the board of a lot of food organizations. And I get to share a room with him. We're roommates at a lot of conferences. And I told him he's the only roommate I've ever shared a room with at a conference where one night before we went to turn off the lights, I handed him his book and I said, will you autograph my book for me? So, uh, and I actually brought, brought a book today for him to autograph too. But uh, Peter was uh, born, uh, raised Jewish, uh, became a monk. Um, and you'll, you'll tell about your, your little bit about your illustrious background. And, um, and he's, he's, he's married to a dietitian. At, at one conference, 
I'm at a food conference. I had digestive problems. He calls his wife, and she gets on the phone with me, and she figures out what's wrong, and he goes to Whole Foods in San Francisco to get food for me. So the, the guy's a good mensch. Anyway, a little spiritual story, because Peter's very spiritual. Um, just a little introduction here. The, this is a story about a man whose wife disappeared in a kayaking accident in, uh, in Hull, Massachusetts. Anyway, the day after his wife disappeared, uh, the man answered his door to find a grim-faced police sergeant and an officer waiting in the front yard. But anyway, we're, they said, the police are there, we're sorry, Mr. Flynn, but we have some information about your wife, Maureen, said the sergeant. Tell me, did you find her, My, Mr. Flynn asked. The policemen looked at each other, and one said, we have had some bad news, some good news, and some really great news. What would you like to hear first? Fearing the worst, Mr. Flynn said, give me the bad news first. The sergeant said, I'm sorry to tell you, sir, but early this morning we found your poor wife's body in the bay. Lord Jesus and Holy Mother of God, exclaimed Mr. Flynn, swallowing hard, he asked, what could possibly be the good news? The sergeant continued, when we pulled the late departed poor Marine up, she had 12 of the best-looking Atlantic lobsters that you have ever seen clinging to her. Haven't seen lobsters like that since the 1960s, and we feel you are entitled in a share of the catch, to a share of the catch. Stunned, Mr. Flynn demanded, God, that's, if that's the good news, then what's the really great news? The sergeant replied, we're going to pull her up again tomorrow. <laughs> so on, on that spiritual note, uh, we'll pull up Peter right now to speak. So. Well, that's one I've never heard before. <laughs> Thank you, Scott. Thanks, Thanks for that uh, unique introduction. Um, <laughs> I'll talk more about, uh, you know, sort of my story and my background in a minute. Um, um, I'm, the reason I'm here is, is that we just published a few months ago a new, a new book. This is my 12th book called uh, Perfect Pan Pizza. So that's why the theme today is a pizza theme. It sounds like you had recently another pizza theme going. And pizza's hot. It's never not hot. It pizza's, you know, just gets bigger and bigger and bigger all the time. Um, and I think, Scott, do we have copies of this here today? Oh, yes. So, so later afterwards, if anybody wants to get a copy, we've got them at a discounted price, and I'll hang around and we'll do some signing. And then later today, we're going we're gonna to go over to uh, Read It and Eat Bookstore, 2.30. I, I checked on it. It'll be 2.30. And we'll be doing a, a, a reading and a signing and, and a talk over there as well. But thank you for coming here today. And uh, where, where, where did you just come from? Oh, um, well, the last, couple, the last two days I was up in Lyle, and we were doing a, a bread-making workshop and a pizza uh, workshop and presentation at a, a new uh, a facility up there called the North American Pizza and Culinary Academy. And it's, it's in Lyle and it's a state-of-the-art facility. People come in from all over the world to take, uh, especially professional people, mostly although on Friday nights they have an event called Pizza and Prosecco. 
So, which was last night, I would, they, it was pizza and Prosecco and Peter. And we had like uh, 45, 50 people came in and sat around tables and was drinking Prosecco all night. So it was a very happy crowd and we were feeding them pizza and I was doing demonstrations. And it was, it was a great turnout. So this is a place that is, um, is becoming a destination location for professional pizza operators, for people in the, um, in the, in the baking industry to come in and take classes with the, the uh, leader there, uh, Leo Spaziri, is the is the the sort of head instructor there, and then he brings in guests all the time, like myself. So I was lucky to, that I, I was able to come in, and it's because he was bringing me in that Scott and I were able to work out uh, a date for today to come over to see all of you. So it was, it was, so it was, for me, it's like a, a twofer. You know, I got two events for one plane ticket, which is really cool. Um, so uh, Laura, I think what we're going to do, what I want to do is uh, show you uh, in the last. 15 years since um, I think one of the times I spoke to the group, uh, I had written a book called um, American Pie, My Search for the Perfect Pizza. And it turns out that, and that book came out uh, over 15 years ago, um, and it's out of date in, a, in one sense. The stories in there are not because they tell, they tell really this, this story of uh, what is the difference between good and great when it comes to pizza. And, and, and my goal was, when I wrote it, was to identify what, dis, what was the distinguishing characteristic between the 99% of pizzerias that all make good pizza and the 1% or 2% that do phenomenal destination pizza. Because my theory and my operating theory was is really there's only two kinds of pizza. There's good and there's very good. And the question is, is why, if, if everybody's working with the same ingredients, why are some of them able to separate from the pack and do something that, in, the, in, the, in terms of the definition of great, is to do something memorable. Memorable became the operating, uh, you know, defining term for greatness. So that's what I've started exploring, and I do that in, in all my bread books and in, in all my, my, now this new pizza book as well, uh, and we'll get more into that in a second. But uh, since the book was, was sort of uh, written at a time when there were only maybe 25 pizzerias in America that you could claim were these destination iconic pizzerias. Uh, Chicago, of course, has a few in the, on the list, and, and there's New Haven, and there's New York, and there's a few other places scattered around the country. Uh, we'll talk more about that. Um, but since that time, there's been a, 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 a surge of great pizzerias uh, of that caliber now. So there may be now a hundred across the United States because the landscape has changed and everyone's learning how to do it better. So I want to talk about that a little bit later. But we started a website called pizzaquest.com. PizzaQuest has sort of became the new operating term for my, my never-ending search for the perfect pizza. So we now call it the, my never-ending quest for the perfect pizza. And uh, on the website, we've got some videos and we've got recipes. And we've got interviews with people uh, who are doing extraordinary work. And it's not just about pizza, but pizza becomes sort of the guiding metaphor for a, a deeper subject, which is really the search for a meaningful life, for life of meaning and purpose. And pizza is sort of a, just a great emblem, just as bread is for that. So uh, this is the opening video. If you were to go to pizzaquest.com, this video stays at the top of the home page all the time because it's kind of like a highlight reel of the first, uh, the first tour of, of pizzerias that we visited. Uh, so we, and we found that while we were doing this tour, that one word kept coming up over and over again 
from the, the various pizza operators that we met, including world champion Tony Gemignani, who's become you know known, he's actually won the world championship of margarita pizza in Naples. He's the first American to ever beat the, the, the Napolese at their own game. You know, he's, the, he's, he's in this video. And Nancy Silverton, who founded La Brea Bread, has a phenomenal pizzeria in LA called Pizzeria Mozza. Some of you may know of these places. Uh, they all show up in this video. And But the word that just kept coming up was, that, that people who are into pizza are obsessed, obsessed with pizza. And, and, and that turns out to be maybe one of the, one of the uh, defining characteristics of what separates the good from the very good is this obsession with pizza. So we call this, this episode uh, Pizza as Obsession. And we're ready to, it's only about three minutes long, we'll show it to you. Go. But if you're on your quest for pizza, 
I'm gonna make you a pizza out of this dough. Out of this dough. All right. We're going on quest, you know, for great pizza, and we're trying to get as many people to jump on the bus with us and come on. So we're on the bus. Yeah. Fantastic. All right. Uh, just a, a recap of that uh, of that video. So the guy at the end who said, "I want to make a pizza for you out of this dough," that was at uh, a, a very influential bakery in San Francisco called Tartine Tartine Bakery, which is one of the best bakeries in the country. And and they've pushed into new boundaries of bread and croissants and pastries. And they have this one particular loaf of bread that they call their country French bread, made out of a very soft sort of ciabatta-like dough that makes, in my opinion, uh, my favorite bread now in the country. It's like, it's just so good. It's about, you taste it and you go, I can't imagine how bread could get any better than this, than this loaf. And so it turns out that the other guys, the guy that was talking about the compounding interest of, of obsession, they have a pizzeria right next to Tartine Bakery called, um, <laughs> Uh, Delfina, Pizzeria Delfina, and the the, um, the the chef owner is Craig Stahl, James Beard Award winner for the best Italian restaurant uh, in in the country. Um, uh, the younger younger guy was his pizza maker, his pizzaiolo named Anthony Strong, and they're right next to Delfina. So while we were there filming uh, at uh, Delfina, we decided to go over to Tartine, and we met a friend of mine who was one of the head bakers there, the guy who was holding the 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 dough. And, um, and he said that not only does this dough make this amazing loaf of bread, but it makes one of the best pizzas you'll ever have. And he lived upstairs from the bakery in an apartment. And in another episode, he takes us up to his apartment and he makes a pizza for us in his home oven on just a baking stone that was as good as any pizza you could get at a pizzeria because it was all about the crust. And really, you know, the, 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 one of the things we learned along the way in this journey that started 15 some years ago, which and really predates that, is that one of the defining characteristics of the difference between good and great is that it's all about the crust. It's all about the crust. Uh, 90 80 to 90% of the pizza experience, uh, many, not everybody will agree with this, but many of the pizza fanatics that I've met, they all say for them, 80 to 90% of the pizza is about the crust and only 10 to 20% about the toppings. Other people might say, no, it's the sauce and it's the cheese and it's this and that. But everybody's got access to sauces and cheeses, but not everybody can make a crust equal to other places. So we find that the memorable quality really starts with the crust. And, uh, and so, but let me go back a little ways, because that's sort of like things that we learned along the way. And um, let me see, uh, the, I guess I can use this to advance this. So um, you could say that my quest for the perfect pizza really began when I was a kid. Uh, growing up in Philadelphia, just, in, just outside the city, city limits, uh, and we discovered a place called Mama's Pizzeria. They made pizzas and cheesesteaks, and they were, the, to my mind, the best. Uh, we, uh, we ate pizza at other places, but Mama's was, for me, the benchmark of, this has got to be the best pizza in the world. It's so good. You know, my world was limited to Philadelphia. And so this was like Mama's, and this is 1958 or 59. Um, you know, for Micah Tables, uh, a husband and wife team, the, uh, the, head, the head and owner was a guy named Paul Castellucci, very nice guy. His restaurant was located uh, on the wrong side of the tracks from where we lived. It was over the Schuylkill River in a little town called Maniunk, which back then was a scary, dangerous 
part of town. It is now one of the foodie epicenters of Philadelphia. But back then, you know, you, that's where all the tough kids lived. And the kids on my side of the river never went over there except to get pizza at Mama's. Uh, and, uh, and so, so we, we, we became regulars. And we were among his very first regulars when he opened the place. Uh, that's my kid brother, Fred, you know, playing air guitar in 1958. Uh, and and uh, this is Paul. So Paul was a, a, a very nice, good-looking guy. Uh, he made uh, terrific pizza, and because we went there so regularly, you know, he befriended us, and uh, we brought people there, and we helped him to grow his business just because word of mouth is the best advertising. And, um, and we went to a few other you know, great pizzerias, but this always became, for me, in my mind, the benchmark. And it wasn't until years later when I went off to college and I lived in other cities and I traveled that I realized that, hey, there's pizza, there's other pizza besides Mama's. Maybe Mama's isn't the best pizza in the world, but it's still, when I go someplace and I eat it, my first thought was, it's good, but it's not as good as Mama's. And I'm guessing that many of you have had similar places like that. We all have our favorite pizzerias. If you go to anywhere, and, and for me, I've moved around a lot over the years, the first question I ask my neighbors or my new friends in that area is, where can I get a good slice of pizza? Because everybody has an opinion about where you can find the best pizza. And God forbid you meet, you're, you're talking to two people, one from New York and one from Chicago, because then you got a fight on your hands over where the best pizza is. And that's Paul's wife, uh, Mary. And Mary's job was to make the hoagies and the cheesesteaks. Because if you're from Philadelphia, you know, hoagies and cheesesteaks are a way of life. It's a religion for us in Philadelphia. Hoagies and cheesesteaks are the thing. And my thought always was that they not only made the best pizza, but they also made the best cheesesteaks. And we could get into arguments with people from other neighborhoods. Everyone thought they had the best cheesesteak place. But a cheesesteak is its own work of art. And I loved them. But there was something special about theirs uh, that I couldn't put my finger on because I didn't know the language then. I wasn't, a, you know, I wasn't raised to be a cook or a chef. But I, I loved going for their cheesesteaks. They were, they were big. They were full of, of juicy meat, lots of cheese. Uh, they used their own pizza cheese instead of Velveeta or the, you know, the, the, the melting cheeses everyone else used. And Mary was in charge of that, that part of the business. Paul was the pizza maker. Uh, that's, that's Mary many years later, uh, making a whole bunch of hoagies there in front of us. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about more about the, about the art of the sandwich. I always consider um, a, a sandwich a kissing cousin to pizza. Because uh, I define pizza as dough with something on it. That's the general category. Pizza is dough with something on it. And a sandwich is dough with something in it. Uh, and, and it's just a, a, you know, kind of a, a, a different variation. But they both, they both provide the, the thing that makes them beloved. Because sandwich, if you take sandwiches and pizza together, that really is like 90% of what everybody eats in some form or another. Um, and there's got to be a reason why these foods are so popular. And I think that ultimately the reason that they're so popular is just because they deliver flavor. Flavor delivery is the key to any kind of successful restaurant or cooking or anything else. People like to say that they eat for health. They want to eat healthy food. They want to eat beautiful food. They want to eat food that's safe, that's not going to make them sick. But people don't go back to a restaurant a second time because the restaurant serves safe food. They don't go back even if they serve beautiful presentations of their food. They only go back to a restaurant if the food tastes great, if they love the food. It doesn't matter how healthy the food is. You won't eat it twice if you don't like it. And so 
so kind of hitting all of those notes is a key. But in the end, it's all about flavor. And I teach at the world's largest culinary school, Johnson & Wales University. We have four campuses. I'm now at the Charlotte, North Carolina campus. And one of the very first lessons that all the instructors convey to our students is, is that your job as a future chef out there is the single most important thing you will learn while you're here is how to deliver flavor to your customers because whoever delivers the most flavor wins the restaurant battles and we'll teach you how to make it put the you know do the handle the food safely you know make them pretty learn all the tricks you need to know but in the end it's all about flavor and bottom line pizza is the perfect flavor delivery system right you get this great crust underneath cheese and sauce the flavors just work um, that's why even an average, even a frozen pizza, even, even a tombstone pizza, which we'll put at the bottom of the pyramid of frozen pizzas, sells millions of, of pizzas because even at that average level, it still delivers flavor. It still works. And so then it's just a matter of nuance when you get to some of the great pizzerias, the ones that you go back to. And I'm sure all of you have places that you go back to over and over again because it works for you. And it may not be because it makes the best pizza. It may be because, like mom has turned out, as I learned later, not because they made the world's best pizza, but because it was my childhood pizza. It was my place. It was the place I went with my friends. Uh, it's a place where you might take a date. It might be the place where you got dumped by a date. Who knows? There's memorable experiences associated with it. So the perfect pizzeria in that in that sort of category, I call it a contextually perfect pizza. It's perfect for you because of the time of life that you were going there for the memorable experiences that you had there around that food. But then I'd learned as I got around the world and started eating pizzas uh, in research for my first book at, at places that I'd heard about but never had, that there's also pizzas that are like, they're executed so perfectly that whether it's a combination of the crust, the choice of ingredients, the flavor, the, the, the quality of the cheeses might be better, the, the, the balance of flavors might be so much perfect that when you taste it, you, you have this thought that this is a perfectly executed in the platonic sense of the word of sort of the ideal of what a pizza could be. Um, it's, it's, it meets the pure paradigm of what a pizza should be. And so I call that category the paradigmatically perfect pizza. And you've got some that are paradigmatically perfect. You've got some that are contextually perfect. And then you've got a few places that are both. And we'll talk in a minute about one of those places that became the centerpiece of my first book and kind of really got me thinking about this question of good versus great. But there's Mary making her hoagies. That's them now, right? For this picture, 1958. Now we're talking about 2000. And I think this photo was taken in 2016. Um, yeah, and their and um, and their kids. Well, their oldest son, uh, Paul's son, Paul Jr., is now running Mama's Pizzeria. Still located after they after they left Maniunk, he moved to a little safer neighborhood called Roxborough, which is just a few miles away. And that was still on the wrong side of the river from where we lived, uh, but we went out there anyway. And then he moved over to about a mile and a half from my home uh, in, in Lower Marion, uh, just outside of Philly, the main line of Philly. And he opened up his final location, Mama's Pizzeria, uh, there right on, uh, on a, a street called Belmont Avenue that's uh, uh, about a half a mile from the city line and has been going ever since. But then he retired 
and, um, and as I found out later, and I'll tell you how I found out. Oh yeah, there's me eating, eating one of their hoagies when I was uh, eight or nine years old, I think, maybe 10. And that's Paul Jr., who's now running the place. So let me stop the, the slides at this point and tell you a little bit more about you know, how I got off on this quest. So, um, so as we went around, as I went around, I got this idea of writing a book about how, why there's some places that do it better than others. And uh, the journey took me to a lot of well-known places, some places where the people just that I knew said, you have to go check out this place. We didn't go, it wasn't exhaustive. I didn't go to every single, um, you know, great pizzeria or, or uh, college pizzeria that, you know, was mentioned because there's just too many. And after a while, it, it, I was starting to begin to see the pattern of what the differences were. So we went to places like in New Haven, Frank Pepe's uh, Napolitana Pizzeria, uh, generally acknowledged to be one of the top five pizzerias in America for the last 60, 70, 80 years. Uh, one block away in New Haven, there's another pizzeria called Sally's. Some people in New Haven, they get into fights over who's better, Sally's or Pepe's. It's like Coke or Pepsi. You can't have both. you got to choose one. But as an outsider, I could come in and go, oh, they're both good. I like them both. I'm very ecumenical that way. I love this. And they even have a third pizzeria called Modern A Pizza. In one town, one little small city, three pizzerias that always show up on the top 10 or top 20 lists of great pizzerias. And they're made in coal-fired ovens, and they're made in different, you know, sort of a, a New York-style pizza, but done to perfection. Paradigmatically, you just go, I don't know that anyone can do a better version of this style of pizza the, than they're doing at Frank Pepe's or at Sally's. Um, and, but it wasn't my contextually perfect pizzeria because I didn't have a lot of history there, but it certainly made my list for paradigmatically perfect. And then there were other places, you know, a few around the country. Uh, I did a little um, uh, Chicago deep dish tour uh, with Rick Bayless, uh, who all of you know. Um, and I just asked him one day if, uh, if he wanted to go on a little pizza hunt with me. Uh, and I told him about the book I was writing and he says, I'm in. And we went, we went to uh, Douay and Uno, we went to Lou Mamanati's and we went to Gino's and we just had these philosophical discussions at each place about what, you know, what's working, why, why is this place, why are they so famous and what's, what are they doing right? Um, and, but eventually I went to a place uh, that I'd heard of, well, I'd actually been there before I got the idea for the book, but I, the buzz was out about a place in Phoenix, Arizona, which some of you may, I'm gonna ask you to raise your hand if you've ever been to Pizzeria Bianco. Has anyone here been to Pizzeria Bianco? Scott has, uh, a few of you in the back have. So only a few of you, you're gonna to have to take my word for this now because it, you haven't been there for you. That Pizzeria Bianco in the late 90s and early 2000s emerged as the go-to pizza place among the, the chef community, the foodie community, the buzz got out. Jimmy Kimmel discovered it and started talking about it on his TV show. And he even put Chris Bianco, the owner, on his show. And it started to like become bigger and bigger and bigger thing. Um, and, and, but when I first discovered it, I went there because somebody told, I needed to make some bread for a conference that Scott and I were at in Phoenix. Um, and I was doing a presentation on bread and I needed to go someplace that made good bread. And I asked one of my students who was from Phoenix, uh, at that time I was living in the Bay Area, San Francisco, teaching at a culinary school there. And one of my students was from Phoenix and I said, I'm going to Phoenix for a conference. Where, where should I go to try to ask if I can use their bakery to make some bread for my presentation? And she said, there's a, only a couple good bakeries, but the best bread in Phoenix is being made at a pizzeria called Pizzeria Bianco. Uh, you should call him. 
and 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 I called him, and he just what he did was he was making bread out of his pizza dough. In addition to the pizzas, he would make these like ciabatta-like loaves of bread in his pizza oven, a wood-fired pizza oven, and serve slices of his breads with you know with just olive oil and uh, and a, as an accompaniment to his meal. His menu was just pizzas and salads and a couple desserts, and the and it was already getting well known locally. Uh, we went in with a group of uh, of of authors and chefs who were there for the conference and we had lunch a private lunch with Chris and he made us an assortment of his pizzas and everybody's eyes are like going oh my god this pizza it's I mean they didn't use these words but this pizza is paradigmatically perfect and you can't get a better pizza than this anywhere that we've ever had even in Italy some of them said Jeffrey Steingarten the food writer um, even wrote about pizza Bianco and, and and claimed that it was better than any pizza he had had in Italy um, so so the, it was spreading. The word was spreading. And, uh, and Chris and I became friends. And when I got the idea for the book, I called Chris and I said, I'd, I'd like to come uh, you know, to Phoenix and interview you for the book. And he said, great. And so by this time, he now was generally acknowledged as the poster boy for the new artisan pizza movement that was beginning to grow across the country. And... Um, and so the wait, wait time to get into the restaurant was about two hours. Uh, at, at that time, he didn't have uh, a place where you could wait. So people would just get their name on the list and then go to a movie or go to, you know, do something else. Or they'd sit out in the sun and drink beer until they were able to get in. And it's Phoenix, you know, it's really hot. Eventually, he got smart and he opened a wine bar right next door to the pizzeria. So now by the time you get into the restaurant, you're already sloshed and any, anything's going to taste good. But you're ready for, you know, a great experience. And the wine bar probably is making more money than the restaurant. Um, but so he'd grown this thing very organically, just word of mouth, no, you know, advertising. He wasn't a big self-promoter, um, but a great guy. He's from New York originally. His father was an artist who moved to Phoenix, moved the family to Phoenix. He landed in Phoenix. There's nothing about Phoenix in particular that makes it a great pizza city, except the fact that Chris was there. And he said the only thing he knew how to do was to cook and to make, and he decided to open a pizzeria with his brother. And... Um, and they opened this as a way to make a living. He had gone to Italy and been inspired by the, the, the pizza makers in Naples. And he decided, I can do this. I want to do this. And he opened this place. And it took him a number of years to get his pizzas finely tuned to where he was happy with them. He told me, he said it, he was in business for six years before he made, ever made a pizza that he, he was proud of. And then once he figured it all out, it just took off from there. So we sat down, we went over, uh, you know, to actually, but then he had, by the time I did the interview, he had opened the wine bar. So we were sitting in the wine bar before, before the restaurant opened and we were just talking. And, and I asked, I said, Chris, what is it about your pizzas? What are the, the tricks and the tips that you could tell my readers that would help them to be able to make pizza as good as you make? And he's a very thoughtful guy and he's kind of stops for a second. He says, well, he says, I think it would be a disservice to people to, to tell them that if you do these tricks and these tips, uh, that somehow you're going to make better pizza. He says, every pizza maker has their tricks on how they handle the dough and, you know, what their choices that they make and every partner. He said, everyone has those. He says, that's not what makes my pizzas so good. I said, well, what is it that makes your pizzas so good? And he says, well, let me think. He said... We make the dough every day by hand. We, at that time, he didn't even use a mixer. His brother, uh, Marco, would come in, he was bigger than Chris, and he mixed the dough by hand. 
and it was a wet, sticky dough, much more difficult to, to, to handle than a regular pizza dough. And because it was so wet and sticky, it also made its great bread. So they would make a big, they took a, had a big giant bowl, they put a 50 pound bag of flour in it, and they mixed the whole thing by hand early, early in the morning. It had all day to ferment. Um, and by the time they opened at night, because they were only open at that time at night, the dough was ready. He says, yeah, he says, so we mix the dough by hand. He says, and I don't use Italian flour, I use American flour. I feel like I, I really want to work with ingredients that are close to home. I, I really believe in this local movement. And, um, and so that's a little bit different. It's a little higher protein than Italian flour. It's stronger. He said, but that's not it. It's not, not, that's not what it is. He said, uh, we make our own cheese. He said, we actually hand pull our mozzarella cheese every day. You saw in the video, Anthony uh, Strong was making a little mozzarella. Nancy Silverton was talking about making mozzarella. You saw Nancy in the video talking about uh, opening pizzeria mozza. Uh, she loves mozzarella cheese. We make that cheese every day by hand. We don't buy cheese from a local cheese place. And, uh, and he says, so that's, I said, yeah, that's pretty cool. That's special. He says, yeah, but that's not what, that's not what it is. He says, uh, we grow a lot of our own produce. We have a little garden in the back. We get, I have relationships with all of my farmers and all of my suppliers. And I'm really picky about the ingredients I choose. I try to get only the best. I import some things. I get some things local. But that's not it. He says, that's not it. I said, well, what is it? What is it that makes your pizza so special? And he, he goes, I think it's because I'm the one who's making them. <laughs> I mean, if you went into Pizzeria Bianca at the time, the, it was a little open kitchen. He had the oven there. He could interact with everyone in the restaurant. There were only, only about uh, uh, 40 seats in the restaurant. So he was having conversations while I was making the restaurant. He said, I love... I'm in the business because I love people. I'd love to connect with my customers. My whole mission is to have, to have connection with people. And I do it through my pizza. And it's my craft. And I love making them. And I, and I don't let anyone else who works for me make the pizzas. I make every single pizza that comes out of this restaurant because I feel like I'm the only one who cares. And if I said, he said, I can teach people my tricks, but I can't teach them to care as much as I care. And I wrote that down. I said, there's one of the distinguishing characters of being good and great is you have to have somebody there who cares. Even at Frank Pepe's uh, Napolitana in New Haven, which opened in the 1920s, Frank Pepe you know, came from New York and did it, his pizza up there, did it better than the New Yorkers. Um, uh, and it became this destination pizzeria. And he passed it on to his family. It's still operated by the family. The fa even the people that they hire to work there this is, their, this is their career. They're not college kids coming in for a day job. They're there because they are dedicated to making pizza. There are people there who care about the pizza. And we noticed this trend at the great pizzas. And, and again, when we're talking about pizza now, you could extend this and think of pizza as a metaphor because these same principles are universal. They apply to all sorts of things. The great restaurants in Chicago certainly has its fair share of great restaurants. There's somebody there who cares about the food more than the restaurant next door where they don't have the same kind of following. The caring transmits through the food. And so that was a real takeaway. So I said to Chris, um, well, what is it? Or I asked him, I said, what is it that you want your customers to experience when they eat your pizza? Because it's all about you and the relationship with your customer. What do you want them to experience? And he got very, very quiet. And he, um, he thought about it for a second. And then he said, 
slowly. I want them to experience my soul. Now, when have you heard a pizza maker say something like that? And I'm going, and the whole room just stopped. I mean, there were only a few people in the room then, and the room was just dead silent for a couple of seconds. I'm going, what, am, how do you, what do you ask after something like that? So finally I asked, well, do they? And he says, what, do they experience my soul? And I said, yeah. And he said, again, he got quiet, thought about it. He said, I think sometimes. <laughs> he said, enough. He goes, enough of this talk. Let's go and I got to make you some pizzas. So it was like, all right, now let's get real. Let's get literal now. Because we had gotten, we had gotten into this no man's land of you know, uh, vulnerability and everything else. And so we just started making pizzas. And of course, you know, they were phenomenal pizzas. And what made them phenomenal to me was the crust was perfect. It, it wasn't like a, a wood-fired pizza that you normally get where as soon as it comes out of the oven, it's really good for about 60 seconds, and then, then the dough gets real floppy and it's soft because it, it hasn't been in the oven long enough to crisp up. And that's a Naples style. And you sort of flip it over and almost eat it like a folded-over sandwich. Uh, it's delicious. It's wonderful. But the, what Bianco had done was take an American approach, and instead of baking his pizzas for 60 to 90 seconds like they do in Naples, he was baking them for about four minutes in a wood-fired oven at a lower temperature so that when it came out of the oven, it looked like a Naples pizza, but the crust had this crisp snap to it. And one of the things I think that, that Americans especially love about the great pizzas like Frank Pepe's as a, another example of a different style of pizza, but they all have that snap. The crust has a snap. When we took uh, Jeffrey Steingarten to the famous uh, DeFaro's Pizzeria in Brooklyn, uh, he criticized it. He panned it. Uh, my friend Joel's here. He went with me, and we went there. We we uh, we went took Jeffrey Steingarten to to do. On a hunt for this DeFaro's pizza, which had been written about as the best pizza in New York, and he told me, he told us in the car. He says, "Remember, I'm like 90% about the crust. So if the crust isn't there, I don't care what's on top." And we and when we get there, and the pizza came out, and it was good. The sauce, the sauce was phenomenal. The guy used really great cheese. He even had a little plant in the window with uh, oregano and another with basil, and he would snip the, the oregano right over the top of his pizza, of the pizza, and it came to the table, and I said, so what do you think? And he said, yeah. He goes, it's okay. He said, but the, the crust doesn't wow me. And, and I found out later, and this, I wish I had known this before we went there, I, talked, I told somebody about the experience, and, uh, and they said, well, did you get a pizza right out of the oven, like a whole pizza, or did you buy a slice? And I said, no, we got the whole pizza. He says, oh. He said, when you go to DeFars, you gotta get it by the slice. He makes pizzas ahead of time, and when he throws the slice back in the oven to heat it up, the crust gets real crisp and you get snap, but it never comes out with that snap. And you know, sure enough, it's the snap that I was looking for, and we all were looking for it. And so we just didn't we didn't give Do, Do, uh, what was it, Dominic DeMarco, the owner, a fair shake. But but the interesting thing about DeFaro's was there was a picture of Dominic when he first opened the pizzeria in 1965 or 66, standing, you know, like uh, like uh, uh, the photo of him right by the oven. And he looked just like Paul Castellucci, with jet black hair. Let me see if I can go back. Um, you know, uh, like that. He looked like that. He looked just like that. He's there proudly standing by the oven with this beautiful 
pompadour hair. And then when we went there, he's like 80 years old now, standing there still making pizzas in the exact same spot that he was making in the 19, you know, 1960s. Um, uh, and he's still doing it even to this day. This was how many, 15 years ago when we went over there and he's still making the pizzas. Um, and it's sort of legendary and people make pilgrimages to DeFaro's just to kind of meet Dom DeMarco. But we weren't blown away by the pizza. And because we didn't know the extra thing you have to ask him to do is throw the slice back in and crisp it up. So next time I go, that's what I'm going to get if he's still around. Um, but uh, but that, these are like little nuances that Chris had figured out that um, that separated him from the pack, that that made it so memorable that people who eat a pizza of Bianco um, can't wait to go back, can't wait to tell their friends, can't wait to brag that they've been to the, you know, made the pilgrimage to Phoenix, Arizona for Pizzeria Bianco, et cetera, et cetera. And now since then, quite a number of other pizzerias have opened. So, the, you know, so this, I think that uh, there's something about the coming together of the artisan bread movement and the artisan bread movement is another community that I'm a part of where we've been studying the great techniques of how to make memorable bread and the pizza community are kind of coming together and trading information, sharing information with each other to make better quality dough. And it's all about fermentation. The things that we've learned about dough has all to do with time and temperature and slow fermentation as opposed to fast fermentation. In other words, the pizza makers now of this new generation are approaching it as a craft. Uh, how many of you here have been to Spaca Napoli? Many hands, okay? So that's one of Chicago's great... Now, it's a relatively new pizzeria. It didn't exist when I wrote my first book. But since that, that time, Jonathan Goldsmith, who is the, the founder of, of Spacanacoli, he's doing a true, authentic Naples pizza, one of the few in the country that's doing a really great version of a Naples pizza. He doesn't bake it like Chris Bianco. He doesn't bake it for four minutes. He bakes it for under 90 seconds. And it's a, it's a, a thing of beauty when it comes out. There's so many different styles of pizza. They all have their benchmarks of what makes them great. But there's a lot of wood-fired pizzerias that are just making an average pizza, a good pizza, because they, haven't, they don't have that dedication. But if you ever talk to Jonathan, you know that this is a guy who deeply cares about every pizza that comes out of his oven. He takes it personal if you're not in love with his pizza because he's put his heart and soul into making it. Here's a guy that, if you have a 10 minute conversation with him, you are starting to experience his soul because he's a very soulful guy. That, and we're meeting people like that, you know, uh, more and more of them around the country. So anyway, I'm you know, working on the book. You know, uh, I just finished here with uh, Rick Bayless. And while we're having uh, deep dish pizza, Rick says, by the way, he says, have you ever heard of this place called uh, Pizzeria Bianco? And I go, yeah, I just came from there. And I told him this whole story about uh, my conversation with Chris. And I go, so you know about that place? He says, oh, man, everybody knows about Pizzeria Bianco now because it's, it's, it's having an impact. And... And so by this time, I was kind of at the end of my journey. I was returning. I lived in Providence, Rhode Island at the time, teaching at Johnson & Wales there. And I decided to stop on my way home in Philadelphia to see my family, my, my mother and my brother. And, um, uh, and I called my brother, and we, he was going to pick us up at the airport. My wife was with me at this point, and, um, and he was going to take us out for dinner. And as we were getting off the plane... Uh, my wife, I, I don't know, she might have stepped in a crack between the, 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 the stairs or something, and she sprained her ankle. 
and she was like really in a lot of pain. And so we got her to my mother's apartment in downtown Philly, and I called my brother, Fred, and I said, listen, we're not gonna be able to go out and eat tonight. I may have to take Susan to the emergency room. She's in a lot of pain. We got her on ice right now. Um, you know, her foot's on ice, but um, we can't go out to eat. He says, well, I'll tell you what. He said, why don't I bring over a couple of pizzas and cheesesteaks from Mama's, and we'll just eat in. And I go, perfect. Careful, because I really, uh, you know, I really want to, uh, you know, uh, experience that again. It's been, it's been 30 years since I had a mama's pizza. And he said, okay. So about an hour later, he shows up with two boxes of pizza and two big cheesesteaks wrapped in butcher paper. And he walks in, and as soon as he walks in, the whole apartment fills up with this aroma that was very familiar to me because I had been a delivery boy for mama's <laughs> one, one summer. And my car filled up with the smell of cheesesteaks and pizzas all together. And it was indelibly imprinted in my brain. It's like we call it taste memory. And I go, and it comes in, I go, oh my God, that's, I feel like I've just stepped back in time. And, and so uh, I immediately take one of the cheesesteaks and rip off the butcher paper. And I look at this cheesesteak and I take a bite of the cheesesteak and the juices start like dribbling down my chin. And I look at my brother and I say, Fred, this cheesesteak's even better than I remember it. <laughs> and he starts laughing and he goes, <laughs> he says, it's too bad you moved away because we get these all the time. And, and I said, yeah, I miss these. And, and then we opened the pizza and I took a bite of the pizza. And I had a different experience. I said, this pizza's not as good as it used to be. And he said, yeah, it's the same. I said, no, no, it's different. It's not the same. He says, no. No, it hasn't changed in years. And I said, it's the crust. There's something different about the crust. And he goes, no. He says, what, what makes you think it's the pizza that's changed and not you? Maybe you're the one who's changed. And that's when I knew that I had a, a theme for the book. The book was really going to answer the question, was it me or the pizza that had changed? And so I'm, so I'm making all these mental notes, but I go, but yeah, but the pizza's not right. And so... Uh, so I call um, Mamas, and, I, and before I go back, I say, I ask, is Paul there? I says, Paul there? And this guy says, yeah, this is Paul. And I go, no, no, you're too young to be Paul. I mean Paul the owner. And he goes, oh, you're talking about my dad, Paul Sr. And he said, he retired 10 years ago, and uh, none of the family members wanted to keep the place. Only I'm the only one who wanted to you know, keep going. My sister, I remember his sister used to work at the front counter and his younger brother used to you know, hang out uh, around everybody who was too young to work. But I, I said, but he said, I said, Paul Jr., I said, the last time I saw you, you were like 13 or 14 years old. And he goes, he goes yeah, I'm 43 now. And, uh, you know, and this place, I'm, and I'm doing it here now. And I said, wow, I said, well, uh, I just had one of your cheesesteaks. I gotta come over, you know, can I, can I, can I come over and talk with you? I need to talk with you about the pizza. And he goes, he goes, yes, here, come on over. So I go over and I, meet, I see Paul and, uh, um, and I sit down and I say, so I got to ask you something. I said, I had the pizza and it doesn't taste the same to me as I remember from my childhood. For, and he said, and he starts chuckling and he goes, so you noticed, huh? And I said, it has changed, hasn't it? And he says, oh, yeah. He said, the pizzas aren't nearly as good as when my dad was here making them. He says, but I don't care. 
And I said, how could you not care? You guys had the best pizza in town. He says, yeah, we did. He said, and back when my dad was here, 80% of our business, no, 75% of our business was, was pizza and 25% was cheesesteaks and hoagies. He says, but if you remember back when, when, when I was a kid working here, I never liked pizza. I always worked with my mom at the cheesesteak station. I love cheesesteaks. Cheesesteaks is my thing. And he, and, and he said, so when my dad retired, we hired people. We tried hiring people who could make pizza as good as him, but all of them had trouble with his dough. They never could make the dough right. It was either too soft, too sticky. It was too hard for them to do right. So my dad reformulated the dough and made it basically foolproof. It's simpler. It's, I said, yeah, but now it's just like Pizza Hut pizza, you know? And he goes, yeah. He says, but now 80% of our business is cheesesteaks and 20% of our business is pizza. We're making more money now than ever. And I'm doing what I love to do. And that's when I remembered. I said, the first words out of my mouth were, these cheesesteaks are better than I remember them. And he goes, oh yeah. And I said, and in fact, I had just read an article by another food writer named David Rosengarten, who had done a whole special edition of his newsletter on Philly cheesesteaks. And he wrote about 20 or 30 different cheesesteak places. And at the very end, he wrote, but if you're in Philadelphia, don't go to Pat's, don't go to Gino's, don't go to these famous pizza, uh, cheesesteak places because those cheesesteaks are just, just average. He said, go to this place. If you want the best cheesesteak, go to this place on, uh, you know, just on the city edge uh, called Mama's Pizzeria. Don't get the pizza, get the cheesesteak. It's the best cheesesteak you'll ever have. And he said, really? He wrote that about us? And I said, yeah. He says, God, I had no idea. I never, he says, I have no life. I'm making cheesesteaks all the time. I never read things like that. And I said, but let me ask you something. What is it about your cheesesteaks that make them the best? And he goes, well, he says, we use um, ribeye instead of top round. Cheesesteak for everyone else. Top round, the classic cheesesteak meat. It's cheap. It can be sliced thin. But we use ribeye. I said, well, that's definitely a difference maker. That's a great cut of meat. He goes, yeah. He says, but, but that's not it. <laughs> and I said, well, what else? He said, well, we make the rolls. We have our rolls made for us, our recipe. We don't use the same rolls, the Amoroso famous cheesesteak rolls everyone else uses. We think we have a better roll. We have it made for us by a, a local bakery. Um, and I go, yeah, it is a really good roll. And he says, yeah, it is, but that's not it. Uh, oh, and we use our pizza cheese blend. We still use that, which was this blend of mozzarella and a little bit of Parmesan and a little bit of cheddar. And that was like their secret ingredient in the cheese that I loved on the pizzas. And he uses that on the cheesesteaks and they're nice and really cheesy still. He says, yeah. And I said, I always loved that about your cheesesteaks. He says, yeah, but that's not what makes them so great. I said, well, what is it? And he says, it's because I'm the one who's making them. And I went, Bingo, right? Now the book has come full circle. Now I know what the defining characteristic is between good and great is the, the person, he says, he said the exact same thing as Chris he says, he says, I can't find anybody who cares as much as cheesesteaks as I do, so I have to make them all the time. I've created a monster, but I love making them. And I said, look, I, I got some orders piling up. Let me make you a cheesesteak and, uh, and we'll talk some more. So he goes behind the counter and there he is working like at the, at the grill. Now that grill, you're only seeing a part of that grill. 
when his mom was working, let me see if there's a photo. Oh, there's some of his kids. Uh, when his mom was working there, um, the grill was just a little bit bigger than this podium, maybe about this big. And she could keep up with the cheesesteaks because it was only a small part of their business. Now the grill was uh, like longer than that table, longer, you know, like about th four times bigger than the podium. It was a huge grill. And he had orders hanging up. And so he starts laying out his cheesesteaks. And he's got his meat on the grill. And he's got the onions grilling over here and the peppers. And, uh, and, and he's like in the back. And he's almost like dancing. And he's not a dancing kind of guy. He's pretty shy, basically, when you're talking to him. And he's not a big ego guy. But he's in his element. He's in his zone. And he starts making the cheesesteaks. And I'm watching. And when the, cheese, when the steak is at a certain point, he flips it over. Um, he puts, at the right moment, he puts the cheese on it, kind of a big pile of cheese. And then as the cheese starts to melt and gets molten, he grabs a roll, he pulls the cheesesteak out with, a, with the spatula that he's got and slides it on the roll, puts the onions and everything, anything else that's gonna go on it on this thing, wraps it up with butcher paper. It's all this one big motion. It's like he's a ballet dancer. He's, he's performing, not for me, he's just in his, in his element. And before you know it, there's like eight cheesesteaks up on the, on the pass, and two of them were for me. And, and so, um, so, I, so while we're talking, I ate one of the cheesesteaks, and I'm going, these really are great. And he says, yeah, he says, I love making cheesesteaks. And, and so he said, you can take the other one back to your wife. Um, well, of course, the other one, only about this much of that cheesesteak made it back to my wife. You know. <laughs> And, and, I, and I, I said, look what I brought for you, you know, cheesesteak for mamas. And she goes, oh, wow, thanks, you know. And then a couple of years later, she heard me telling this story. And she goes, you mean I was supposed to have that whole cheesesteak and I only got like one quarter of it? I said, so I've never been able to live that down at home. Um, but, um, but that's how good this che these cheesesteaks were to cheesesteaks what Bianco's pizzas were to pizza, in my mind. And so I went home and wrote the book. And, you know, uh, uh, and that's led now to Pizza Quest and... and uh, the never-ending quest for for perfect pizzas because they keep happening. You know, people places keep opening, and we keep meeting more and more people who are on fire with what they're doing. And it's not just in the pizza category. We even say on Pizza Quest that the purpose of the website is to celebrate artisanship wherever we find it. So it's not just pizza makers. You saw the tomato guy growing tomatoes in California. They're obsessed with their tomatoes. They want to have the best. That's Stanislas Tomatoes, one of the, the premier tomato products in the country that most pizzerias use. Um, and, 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 it, and there's winemakers and cheesemakers and, and beer makers. They're all artisans working in the same sort of category. And you know, all this goes back to my own, you know, my own personal journey. Uh, from the kid who liked cheesesteaks and pizzas to somebody who, after college, decided that I wasn't really sure what my purpose in life was, what, sh what I should do. I wasn't trained to be a cook. I was at Boston University as a film major. I wanted to, make, I wanted to write and direct movies, but I didn't really know what I had to say as an artist. What, you know, I wasn't ready. I, I knew the film industry would chew me up and destroy me if I just went into it not knowing who I was. So I went on my own personal journey in search of my own sense of meaningfulness. And I ended up learning how to cook in a vegetarian restaurant in Boston, but with a bunch of hippies. And while I was there, I learned a little bit about bread making. And after a while, I ended up uh, you know, joining a, um, after studying yoga and Buddhism and all these world religions and meditation and everything, I somehow found myself in a, in a, in a, in a class with uh, a bunch of Christians. And I was raised Jewish, you know, and, they, and I'm going, 
this particular version of Christianity that was being expressed to me kind of tied together all of the threads of my journeys to the Eastern religions and to my own Jewish heritage. And I thought, you know, there's something that's working for me here. And I ended up becoming uh, um, a brother, known as Brother Peter. My first bread book was uh, under the authorship of Brother Peter in, in a non-denominational Christian brotherhood with men and women who were seeking like me, just seeking answers to the big questions of what is the purpose and meaning of life and how can I live a, a meaningful life? And a lot of us knew how to cook, so we opened restaurants around the country, uh, one of which was uh, called Brother Juniper's Cafe. And uh, by then I had met my wife, who was also from Philadelphia, but who was a sister at the time, Sister Susan. And, and we opened this cafe uh, and we started making bread and, and other foods that, we, that I had learned how to make along the way. And one thing led to another, and bread, the bread just took off. And I, and I found that I had a knack for bread making. It just came to me intuitively. It, it came easy. And we created a whole, like, bakery. And for, we went from making 20 loaves a day for our cafe uh, to 60 loaves, then to you know, 120. And eventually, we were up to 2,000 loaves a day, selling them all over Northern California, because we were in California then. But I was burning out because I wasn't really cut out to be a, a business operator. That wasn't my training. My training was in ministry and in writing and communications, and I wanted to teach. And so we sold the bakery eventually, uh, and uh, I uh, took my training as a... Now I become known for my breads, and I had written my first bread book called Brother Juniper's Bread Book, uh, and the subtitle was Slow Rise as Method and Metaphor. And so, I, so I, I latched onto the idea of bread as a, as a metaphor and a symbol for how to live a meaningful life. And I finally knew what it was that I had to say. I was ready to start making films again, and you know, I, was, I wish I could go back to college. But I, I started writing books, and now I'm up to, this new book is number 12. And it, it just continues this exploration. You know, it's really, I think on Pizza Quest, on our website, it says, uh, next to the word Pizza Quest, it says, a journey of self-discovery through pizza. And I think anything can be a metaphor. It doesn't have to be pizza. It can be any craft. Anything you love can be a window into the, into the universe, into the universal mind of the creator. And, um, and I just try to encourage people, based on what I learned in writing the first pizza book, that the way you get through that window and the way you get answers to the questions is you, you have to care more than anyone else about getting those answers and finding what your meaning and purpose in life is. It's not my job or anyone else's job to tell you what your meaning and purpose in life is. And many of you already know this. It's your job to find it. And you find it through the things that you love, the things that you care about, and then the willingness to go deep into it and become you know, a master of that particular craft. Uh, I just gave a, a, a graduation talk um, at a college in Connecticut. They gave me an honorary doctorate um, uh, because of you know, my, my life's work. And they asked me to give a 10-minute talk. And I told these graduates, I said, I said, one of the things I've learned along the way, because my students always ask me for tips and tricks on how to have a successful career in life. And the one trick, trick that I can tell them or a tip that I can tell them is to find something that you really love in the culinary arts, that you love more than any other part. Become good at a lot of things, but become really great at one thing. Find the one thing that you really love to do and become an expert in that and get be so expert at it that you tip over into a, a realm of greatness 
of excellence that will infuse all of the other things that you're good at. But you can't be good, uh, excellent at everything until you become excellent at one thing. And you can only get there if you, if you really are in love and, and, and are passionate about that one thing. I had a student in one of my early classes. We went around at the end of the, the uh, 20, whatever, 18 days of the class. And at the end, everyone kind of testified as to what they wanted to do with their career. And this one girl who uh, uh, wanted to be a pastry chef, and she said, you know, I would like, my, my goal is to be um, the best sorbet maker in San Francisco. We were teaching, I was teaching in San Francisco at the time. And she said, I love sorbets and I want to be, I want to make that the focus of my career. And in fact, I said, one day I'd like to be known as the sorbet queen of San Francisco. And some of the other students started kind of snickering and laughing. And they go, yeah. I said, no, 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 listen to her. She's got, she's got her eye on the prize here. She knows what she wants to do. Take it seriously. Because, um, you know, she has one thing that's going to affect the rest of her life. Well, anyway, the students all graduated. And six months later, I'm reading a review in the San Francisco Chronicle about a restaurant. And she had gone to work there as the assistant pastry chef. And the pastry chef saw that she loved making sorbets. So she gave her the project of upgrading and improving the ice creams and sorbets of the restaurant. And she was so good at it that a couple, uh, a, a couple, a month or so after she got to that point, the head pastry chef decided to take a maternity leave and leave the restaurant. And she put the pastry kitchen in her hands. Her name's Denise. She put it in Denise W. I'll just say call her Denise W. Put it in Denise W.'s hands and made her the pastry chef. A month or two after that, the newspaper reviewed the restaurant because they had revamped the whole menu. And they raved about the food. They said, gave it a really good review. But at the very end, they said, but don't forget to save room for dessert because you've got to try Denise W's sorbets. She has elevated the art of sorbet making to a new level. In fact, she must be called the sorbet queen of San Francisco. <laughs> she, it was like Babe Ruth. She called her shot, you know? And I just looked, read that, and I just—it was—it was so satisfying to, to hear that. So, uh, so those are like little things, little life lessons that you know. Of course, you learn along the way. You know, here's Paul Jr. with his with. Uh, I think that's one of those is his nephew, and just he's teaching people how to make cheesesteaks. And I'll kind of close with this. This one of the guys in the video you saw him teaching me how to toss dough. He is the world champion, Tony Gemignani, the guy I told you about who beat the, the folks in Naples at their own margarita paint. And he's got the same thing. He's got this prodigious talent and he can make pizzas in any, any style. He can do eight different styles of pizzas at his pizza restaurant. We have a lot of videos of Tony on Pizza Quest, a whole series of him showing us his different ovens for each kind of pizza. He makes a different dough for each kind of pizza. He loves it. And but, uh, but of course, he's most proud of his world championship margarita pizza, which has its own dedicated oven. And he only makes like so many, 76 or 78 a day. And then he stops making them because that number has some significance to him. I mean, he's got a reason for every choice that he makes. And he printed on the boxes of his, of his pizza his, his mantra, his slogan, which is, you know, to become as great as Tony, you have to respect the craft. It's all about the craft. So his way of saying what I've been trying to say to you is, is respect the craft. And uh, I think I'll just leave you with that because those are some of the life lessons that I've learned. Uh, do we have time, Scott, for a few Q&A questions? Yeah. Uh, and, oh. <laughs> oh, thank you.
Oh, and, 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 and I will come back to this, but before be, I want to talk a little bit about what's different about this book, because we're focusing on a particular kind of, of pizza that I think is the new, the new trend in pizza. Question. Okay. You had somebody help boost your career this famous <laughs> right, book writer. Right, right. forward to your first book. Right, yeah. Yeah, when I wrote my very first book, uh, Brother Juniper's Bread Book, and the whole idea was built around this metaphor, uh, I was just an unknown author, but, I, but at my bakery at the time was in uh, uh, Sonoma County, California, in the wine country, and we became, uh, uh, Scott was asking me about who this person who helped me uh, you know, launch my career as a writer, and we found out that one of the fans of, um, of Brother Juniper's breads, by the breads I was making, was a very well-known food writer named M.F.K. Fisher. And some of you, you know, who are in the food world know M.F.K. Fisher is probably regarded as the most important food writer in the 20th century in America. She, she just was an exquisite writer, and she wrote about, really specifically about food, but there was always something deeper, unspoken, in all of her writing. She was just a an artist as a writer. And it turns out I found out that she loved my breads and somebody said she wants to meet you. And uh, Susan and I went over to her house and brought her some breads and we got to become friends with her during the last two years of her life and became very close with her. And, um, and she asked me at any point, at one point, uh, is there anything I can do to help you with your career? And I said, well, I'm working on this book. I have this book idea. I'd love for you to look at it and tell me what you think and give me some notes or, you know, uh, and of course, secretly inside, I was hoping she would say, oh, yeah, I'll write the intro for it. And so sure enough, she read it. She says, I really like what you wrote. She said, I'd be happy to write an intro for you. I think it was the, one of the very last uh, forwards or intros she ever did for anybody because in the end of her career, she was crippled by Parkinson's disease and she, was, uh, she knew that her time was limited. And so she was trying to help other authors by writing intros to help them launch their careers. So she wrote a very sweet you know, two-page intro to my book, which having her name on the cover of the book forced everybody to take the book seriously and, and got me you know, a big uh, jump start that I might not have had otherwise. So I'm, I was really grateful. And then um, uh, uh, about nine months later, as she was getting close to death, we, we went and visited her. She, was, she really had a fondness for my wife, for Susan, and they were really close. She wasn't a religious person, but she, was, but she liked us, even though I was brother Peter and she was sister Susan. I used to have, actually wore a collar and everything else. And, and, she, and, uh, and so we kind of like just were comforting her towards the end. And then we left after this last time. Uh, Susan actually rubbed some oil and, you know, on her feet and, and uh, kind of almost uh, anointed her. And, um, and then we left and then I, hadn't heard, I didn't hear anything for about a week. So I called over to her house and her daughter and her son-in-law were there, you know, by this point at the house holding vigil. And uh, her son-in-law answered the phone, and I said, this is Brother Peter calling. Uh, uh, I was just wondering if there's any news on Mary Francis. MFK Fisher's Mary Francis Kennedy Fisher, if on Mary Francis. And he said, hold on for a second. And he goes, I hear him talk to his wife, uh, Mary Francis's daughter, and he comes back to the phone and he goes, at the very moment that you called, she passed. And I went, Wow, you know, holy cow. And, uh, you know, just, you know, what could you say? You know, I said, God bless her. And, um, and she said, we'd like you to come on Saturday. We're having a gathering of her friends for kind of like just a, a little tribute gathering. 
And we said we'd be honored. So we came, we showed up on Saturday. He gave us the wrong time. So by the time we got there, like the whole place, the whole house was filled with people. And when we walked in, uh, all of a sudden these people started looking at us and pointing at us and everything else. And it was almost like the Red Sea party. We're walking through to try to get through. And they're going, he's the one, he's the one. (laughs) And they said, you're the one who called, right? When she passed, right? And I said, well, yeah. They said, how did you know? And I said, I didn't know. I I mean, you know, Maybe we were just connected. I don't know. I just had this hunch to call. And, and so we, again, unexpectedly, unanticipatedly, we were suddenly elevated to a new level of um, acknowledgement you know, from all of her friends, and they started taking it seriously. But so anyway, that was what Scott was referring to as somebody who made a big difference in my life. Um, I wanted, just wanted to say something about this book. So in, in the course of the last few years, Pizzas baked in pans, like a lot of us grew up with pizzas baked in pans, whether they're focaccias or just, you know, like grandma style pizzas or Sicilian style pizzas, as opposed to hearth baked pizzas like the Neapolitan that you see at Spock and Napoli and wood fired pizzas. Pizzas baked in pans are coming back in a big way. And one of the categories that's very big is Detroit style pizza, which has been around for 65, 70 years, started in the 1940s. Um, uh, but has kind of stayed as this little secret in Detroit. It's baked in a, in a little taller pan than a regular sheet pan. Um, it's got lots of cheese on it. The cheese melts down the side and it makes a little crispy cheese crust and edge. And there's a few places here in Chicago doing great versions of Detroit style pizza. Some of you know about them. Uh, Paulie G's in Chicago, which has actually started in Brooklyn. And now there's a guy here who, who Paulie G, Paulie is this guy who left uh, a job as a computer programmer in his 50s and opened a pizzeria in Brooklyn. And now he's like national, he's like another Chris Bianco kind of guy. He's so, so passionate about his pizzas and he's found people like himself and trained them and given them the right to open their place under his name, Paulie G. So the guy who owns the Paulie G's here is doing Neapolitan wood-fired pizzas, but he's also doing his own version of a Detroit-style pizza, and he taught and he's teaching Paulie G now how to do Detroit. And people have told me, and I was last night when I was in Lyle, people were coming up to me telling me, you know, if, while you're in Chicago, you should try getting over to Paulie G's best Detroit pizza, maybe better than even in Detroit. So that's an example of one. So in the book, half the book is dedicated to how to make. Uh, Detroit-style pizza, which is, we're seeing it in competitions at the pizza shows that I go to. It's it's getting bigger and bigger. It's kind of ready to just tip over nationwide into a big category of its own. And for the book, uh, we developed, I developed with a restaurant in uh, Texas, uh, a method, my own original method of how to make it using cheese. Half the cheese gets put on the dough before the cheese, before the dough rises. It rises for four hours in the pan. It's a pan pizza, so it's more bready like a, like a focaccia. It rises up, but half the cheese gets embedded in the, in the dough, and then the other half goes on the pizza right before you put it in the oven. There's no Detroit pizzeria making it that way. This is an original technique, and it, and it was such a, for me, a, a game-changing method. When we developed this, we, we knew that we were onto something that could be that could change the the way that these pizzas are made, uh, and so more, as people have been coming to workshops that I'm doing, some of them are actually trying to do that now in their restaurant. So 
uh, I call it the embedded cheese method. It's my trick and tip and technique. Uh, will that make the best Detroit pizza in the world? Only if you care as much as, you know, as the folks in Detroit care. But then we also have Sicilian and other, all these different kinds of pan pizzas with a, a few dough recipes and, uh, and uh, methodology. So this, this is focused again on that never ending search for perfection, but all through the, the window of one category of pizza. Which, which I think is going to become bigger. We're even doing Roman-style peaches, like Banchi, that are, again, in, going to be the next big wave. We're always, I'm always looking for what's going to be next, because Americans are, we have a short attention span. We like whatever's next as much as we like what's happening right now. And, and what's next is going to be Detroit-style, and then followed by Roman-style will probably be the next big trends in pizza. So any more questions? Yes. So she's asking about certified Neapolitan, the VPN, the Vera Pizza Napolitana. It's a certification that pizzerias can get if they have been trained in a school of, a kind of a philosophical school of how to make pizza based on the method perfected in Naples using uh, uh, wood fire. These are some of the elements. So it has to be baked in a wood-fired oven somewhere between 700 and 900 degrees using double zero flour, Tipo's double zero, which is a type of Italian flour. Theoretically, it should also be using um, certified tomatoes from um, uh, San Marzano tomatoes from the cliffs of Mount Vesuvius. You know, there's all these different rules. They have to establish a rule that, is, that defines a true Naples pizza. So a margarita pizza is, is, par, is part of that style of pizza, and it's the sort of it's the benchmark. It's the, it's the baguette of pizzas. If you can't make a great baguette, people won't take you seriously as a baker. If you can't make a great margarita, they won't take you seriously as a pizza maker. So they have these competitions. And only a few pizzeria uh, owners have gone through certification. Leo Spaziri at this North American Pizza Academy in Lyle is one of the few certified trainers. He can actually certify pizzeria operators in this style of pizza. So some of the, he didn't certify uh, um, Spacanapoli. Uh, he went over to Italy and got certified, Jonathan. But some of the others have been certified locally to do this. Now, that said, just because a restaurant is certified VPN doesn't necessarily mean it's gonna be a memorable pizza. Remember, for me, greatness is defined by is it memorable or not. Some of them are and some of them aren't. I've, been, I've had a lot of VPN pizzas that just left me sort of feeling meh. You know, like it's good, but not memorable. Uh, why? Well, a lot of them is once they got the VPN, they started like, okay, I'm gonna have you make the pizza today and I'm gonna be, you know, going to the beach or whatever. It could be a lot of reasons. Or they don't, they just haven't mastered the craft. Like Tony says, it's all about respecting the craft. You have to master it and it never ends. Chris Bianco says even to this day, 25 years after becoming the poster boy of pizza, that he's still always learning ways to improve his pizza. So you all have to have that inner drive to always be getting better and not kind of riding on your laurels. But that's, the, that's, the, that's what this VPN is. And it is a rigorous training. You have to really adhere to these principles. Now, some places will get the VPN, but they'll also make, like Tony Gemignani has the certification, and he's also a certified trainer, but he also makes other kinds of pizzas that don't fall under that flagship. He makes, he makes Detroit pizzas, he makes Sicilian pizzas, he makes every style, New York style pizza at his pizzeria because I call Tony the Mozart of pizzas because he can, he can like Mozart could play any kind of music better than anybody else. He could do operas, he could do symphonies, he could do concertos, he could do popular songs. 
um, he was a genius. And Tony is kind of a pizza genius, and, and he loves to show that he can do everything. But other guys, um, there's a guy in New York City that we have on Pizza Quest named Anthony Mangieri. He has a pizzeria called Una Pizza Napoletana, the one, the Una, the, the one Naples-style pizza. And, but his is his own, it's not VPN. He uses sourdough as his crust. He has his own way of doing it. He built his own oven. Um, He's, he's a genius, but he only makes one style. He doesn't try to do five styles of pizza, so I call him the Chopin of pizza because he, he's, a, he's a minimalist. He does one thing, and he does it really, really, really well. And, and Jonathan is more like that at, at Spaka. One thing really well. He says Chopin. If you're going to call you either a Chopin or a Mozart, he's, the, he's in Chopin. Um, and they're, both, they're all equally geniuses. So it's a wide world out there, but it's, but it's a fun world to be in. Well, uh, so he's asking, how can he get his crust, which tends to be a little bit more too puffy, too bready? Uh, he wants it to be thinner, maybe more crisp, and things like that. Although he's looking for certain quality, uh, and you probably can from that dough. But uh, some of the questions we would ask would be: uh, number one, um, uh, what kind of flour are you using? All-purpose flour, okay. And are you using um, what what hydration level? What percentage of water to flour? Do you have any idea, or is it just what what the recipe says? I, I do it by feel. Is it? Uh-huh. Very supple dough, easy to stretch out. Uh huh. Probably about typically for 65% hydro- water to flour is pretty average, but it can be higher. So the amount of water you put in can affect it. Uh, and then, uh, well, the more water you put in, the more it puffs up around, especially around the edges. But it can also be harder to stretch because it's more fragile when it's wetter. Uh, like that dough, you saw the guy you know, in the bakery, he had a very wet, sticky dough, but he learned how to work it. Um, so a lot of times it has to do with uh, how patient you are in stretching it, because if you're getting too much breadiness, then then you probably need to either make a, uh, that was my other question, is how, how big is the dough ball that you're using? Do you know how much it weighs? Is it just a big, big ball of dough? Yeah. Have you, do, you have, do you weigh it? We, we try to encourage people to use weights because that's a way that you can control quality. But... Um, Typically, if you're making one in your home oven, I would say start with eight ounces. If you can, weigh out eight ounces of dough. It's not a big dough ball, but it will make a good 10 to 11 inch diameter of your pizza. And that's a good size to be able to manage as opposed to a 16 inch you know, large pizza, which is much. So you're making larger pizzas. But so again, for the. Make two pizzas. You make two small, make them smaller and be patient. Like if the dough isn't stretching uh, you know, to that. Uh, uh, size, lay it down with a little dusting of flour on the bed, lay it down to rest for about 30 seconds or a minute, and the gluten, which is causing it to like be springy, will relax. And every time you pick it up, you can stretch it a little bit more until you get a good 10 to 11 inch diameter, which means you'll have a fairly thin platform that the edge will always be still thicker, and that will still puff up. But that's okay if the edge puffs up. We call that the cornicione. But the the, the base will be thinner, so it should crisp up more. And if you bake it, are you baking it in a home oven? So at what temperature? As high as you can go. How long does it take to bake? Well, that's a long bake, and so that will tend to make it a little drier. If you can make them smaller and crank it up, you should be able to get them out in about five minutes. And if you can get them, you know, shoot for a four and a half to six minute bake time, you can get that really nice crisp, you know, bottom, the snap, uh, but, um, but, not, uh, but not dry, it won't dry out.
you know, and it's just finding the sweet spot in your oven. Are you baking on a stone, pizza stone? Yeah, so shoot for maybe six minute bake and I'll bet you'll, you'll get a you know, better pizza if you can, don't make it quite as big and try to stretch it as, you know, to a, a, a good 10 to 11 inch diameter. Well, it just depends on, the, with all-purpose flour, about 65% or 64%. It just, the brand can, can vary. It's not a lot. The dough should feel tacky, but not sticky. Tacky like a post-it note. It should peel off your finger as opposed to sticking to your finger. And, and if, the, if the dough sticks to your finger, um, then, it's, then it's more on the sticky side. So go for tacky, but not sticky. Let, it, let the dough balls rest like you're doing, and then be patient. Be patient with the stretching process. I don't know. It depends on if you maybe have the right amount of water right now. If your dough is easy to stretch out, then you're probably fine. If you think that it's tight and fighting you, then put maybe an extra half ounce or so of water, or you know, a little bit more ease, ease into it, and then write down when you finally get the the, the sweet spot. Now, what you were asking about sugar, uh, what do you do? You like to put sugar in your dough or not? Sugar can help it with browning. Are you getting good color on your crust? You're at that long of a bake, he's probably getting good caramelization. Uh, but that is an if for people. Sometimes, if you're baking at a at a high temperature and you're only baking for three minutes because you really want it to be real fast, a little sugar in there can help get you more color, more brown, more caramelization in your crust. I, I do it to help the yeast. Uh, for the yeast. Never sure how fresh I used it. Well, yeah, sugar, as a, a little bit of sugar is really good in pizza doughs, you know, it's, and it's not a, there's no rule that says you can't. There is a rule, if you're doing VPN pizza, Naples pizza, yeah, you, they'll throw you out of the association for going against the rules. We call them the pizza police. But, but then again, there's other people that say, I don't care what the pizza police say, I'm going to do what I like. Nancy Silverman says, I want to make the kind of pizza I make, that I like. But uh, so there's rules and then there's greater rules. There's only one rule that really counts to me, and that's the flavor rule. The flavor rule supersedes the pizza police rule, and the flavor rule is flavor rules, right? So if your pizza's working, then don't let anyone say you're doing it wrong. And, and, and if it's not working for you, then do something to get the flavor to the you know, best level. So recently there's been a lot of press about this new flour, that Nuvola flour. Nuvola, yeah. I just got a bag, uh, it arrived when I got to Chicago, the bag arrived at home. I'm going to test it out. It's a type of flour from Italy, it's a, a, a Caputo brand flour. My question is, I haven't been able to find it, but I love that salad with a nice fatty cornicione, do you have any tips for like, how do you, you know, like what's the nice, sort of the Nuvola flour? The Nuvola flour basically is Italian 00 flour with some enzymes and other things added to it to make it perform more like an American flour. Uh, and they found that it's a good balance. You get more puff from it. Uh, I haven't tried it yet, but I've heard good things about it. But a lot of people that are doing pure Italian pizzas, like, a, like the kind of, it sounds like you want to do something more like a Naples-style pizza, kind of like Spacanapoli, then you just, you can use a standard. He's not doing anything special in that dough except uh, uh, using a good double zero. I think he uses Caputo double zero, you know, uh, uh, pizza flour, and a uh, small amount of yeast, uh, uh, probably whatever the amount of water that it takes, I'm going to guess around 64, 62, 64% water to flour. And then he lets those, uh, lets the dough, um, the dough balls rest overnight in the refrigerator to develop flavor. The resting actually helps with enzyme development to sweeten the flavor of the dough. Uh, you don't have to do it overnight. You can do it the same day, but I always find that overnight gives you more 
flavor. Uh, and then it's all about, then you should get that, the nice puffy crust. If your oven's hot, the hotter the oven, the more, the more cornicion you're going to get. So in a home oven, it's tough. Do you have a, a wood fire? You have a wood fire. So yeah, so you should be getting that crust. But if you're not, then try to put a little bit more water in your dough because that water will cause puff. Well, yeah, that, well, that's what they're marketing at. They want, because people want that puff around the edge. Um, I don't, I haven't tested it yet. I've heard good things about it. You should be able to get it soon. I've heard that they ran out. It was so popular that now they're, they've got to get more made, more milled. Um, so keep checking the, um, the, the web, keep checking Caputo and see if you can, you know, order some directly from one of the suppliers. Orlando Foods in New Jersey is the importer. And so if you go to the Orlando Foods website in New Jersey, uh, you might be able to write to them. I'm going to, in three weeks, we're having a pizza show in Atlantic City, and they're going to be there. Uh, and by then, I'll have to, I'll te I will have tested that flour out. Um, but if you call them, they may be able to ship you some. You know, yeah. Yes, thank you for mentioning that. Yeah. So what happened, this guy who made every single pizza ever for like the first 20 years of his pizzeria, um, when he was a kid, Chris had asthma as a kid, and he overcame the asthma, but then he would start making pizzas, and he was inhaling a lot of flour dust or being working around pizza, and he started having these asthma attacks. And so he went to his doctor, and the doctor said, I got bad news for you. He said, he said you have something comparable to what we call white lung disease, just like black lung disease from, from breathing in coal you know, uh, dust. People that work around flour a lot, some of them develop uh, a, 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 the flour sticks to your lungs and it doesn't, it's like glue, it doesn't go away and it's bringing on these attacks. If you keep making pizzas, you'll be dead within two years. And so Chris had to reinvent himself and he had to then decide that he was going to train proteges who cared as much as he cared. He did have one guy working for him for many years who never got to make the pizzas, except the one day when Chris was sick. Now he's turned the, the oven over to that guy and he's training other guys to do it. He's opened up a second location. He's uh, got a place in LA now with, uh, with the guys from, from, uh, from Tartine Bakery, have partnered up with Chris to open a, pizza, a, a Tartine Bianco uh, uh, facility in LA. So he's had to expand and now he's, he's working on bringing out a branded line of, of Bianco products. He's got his own tomatoes, the Bianco uh, the Napoli tomatoes are really, really good, grown in America. He's got flour that he supports. So he's becoming an ambassador of pizza and training others. But yeah, he's had to move into the next phase of his career, which everybody's going to face. Every, you know, every great athlete knows that their worst enemy is the clock because you know, even uh, Michael Jordan had to retire. And now LeBron James is looking at retiring. You know, the, there's, um, there's, a, there's a limit, a time limit on, on, your, on that level of your career. But then that doesn't mean your life is in. You've got to, you can keep reinventing yourself and, and find your next passion and become great at it. And so Chris's passion right now is, is highest quality ingredients uh, that, are, that are also kind to the earth. He's very environmentally sensitive. So, Kathy, do you want to talk a little bit about what you've got for tasting? And, and, and these are not Detroit-style pizzas. These are focaccia-style, which are baked in a regular sheet pan. Uh, because you've got to have a taller pan to do Detroit pizzas because the cheese will melt over the side and into your oven. 
But with focaccia, you don't have to worry about that. But thank you so much for making these for us today uh, because that's a real treat, that, and, and I, I greatly appreciate that. And, oh, and a fruited focaccia. So, so we've got the, the savory, and, and, and I think one of the few non-savory pizzas in the book is what I call the fruited focaccia, and it happens to be one of my favorite. I love it. It's like you can have it for dessert, you can have it for breakfast, you can have it, you, you, you basically can't stop eating it if you, you know, when you start because it just tastes so good. If you like raisin bread, you're going to love this, uh, this focaccia. All right, I'm going to thank you so much for having me again. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Kathy. And, and I'll see you. Thank you, uh, Laura, for all this, a, this AV support up here. That was great. <laughs>